Bienvenidos, marhaban, and welcome to the Never Never podcast, exploring the Dresden Files series by Jim Butcher, urban fantasy done right. I'm your host, Christine. I'll be releasing multi-chapter analysis episodes for each book, along with special bonus episodes of a more topical nature. The Never Never podcast may include spoilers from all sources, including the books, short stories, graphic novels, and blog posts, interviews, and panels from the butcher himself. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality, fantasy violence, and very real violence. I'm also terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. Before we begin, I wanted to say thank you to Rob and Pat, the gentlemen at the Paranet podcast. I sent them a fan letter because their content is excellent and I'm a nerd. The Paranet podcast is more of a first read-through book club, so they're much less spoilery than I am. Perfect if you're new to the series. They're amazing at the improvised banter and humor, and their raw takes are insightful, catching things that I missed, as well as lending a different perspective to the points we've both made. So check them out, link in the description. But yeah, I reached out and they responded, uh, very kindly mentioning this program on their excellent, much more timely (laughs) podcast. We've mentioned the possibility of recording a a chat on their podcast sometime in the future, and wouldn't that be lovely? It'd be an exciting way to grow the podcast, and at the moment the world seems awash in possibility. But we're here for the things that follow. So let's draw our circle and step through the way to the never-never. Episode 5. The Things That Follow. Recorded August 25th, 2020. Covering Stormfront, Book 1, Chapters 11 and 12. In this episode. Harry loses the bottom of his stomach when a stoned stranger gives him a vicarious blast from the past. Harry and Murphy, detective, putting together the disparate pieces of Karen's investigation. Oh, right! Harry has a head injury. Night-night! Murphy gets Harry home safe and looks at him funny as he novelly navigates calls with clients and leads poorly through the addled fog of his bonked noggin. Night-night round two! We've got eldritch shadows hunting our hero, plot hints that you may have missed, and more evidence that Harry and Murphy are meant to be. So... With no more ado, here is your synopsis. Chapter 11, Three-Eye and the Impossible Spell. Harry Dresden goes down to the police station to give Karen Murphy the bad news about the impossible spell used in the Broken Hearts murders. Before he can tell her, shit gets real, as a Three-Eye user off his gourd scares the bejesus out of Harry by bringing up an old demon he really shouldn't know by name. Murphy and Harry figure out that this drug and the murders are linked before Harry's concussion rears its ugly, pounding head. Chapter 12. Can't remember. Must nap. Murphy takes Dresden home and cares for him as Harry shores up some business calls. Linda Randall reaches out. 
Harry invites her over later that night to tell him what she knows. Dresden calls Monica, who cancels their investigation, telling him to keep the money, all the while acting for someone in the room with her. Murphy answers a deadline call and sweetly leaves Harry to sleep. Which brings us to the context section. Here we discuss the series' overarching plot, groundwork, character intros, and world building, as well as any meta aspects, mythology, callbacks to other books, foreshadowing, and theory. So chapter 11, Three Eye and the Impossible Spell. My peeps, I have been waiting for this chapter. It is hefty. It is seasoned with so much deep world building. Seasoned like a curry, or in that Alice in Wonderland, the Duchess thinks it needs more pepper kind of way. It sets up elements that won't be mentioned again for almost 10 books and won't be paid off for another three more books after that. Like a, a burst pinata of future story chunkles. Now apologies if you don't like quotes, but buckle up Buttercup because this episode has them spilling out of its pockets. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so ex- I feel like Pinkie Pie. Okay, deep breath. After hours and hours of research and calculations, checking and rechecking his math, Harry is gobsmacked. The spell was impossible, unless there was a serious heavy hitter in town, like heavier than him. So it's off to report to Murphy. Here there's a seemingly throwaway line that suggests some ominous possibilities, if not foreshadowing. He relates, quote, I grabbed my duster and headed out without bothering to check my looks. I don't keep mirrors in my home. Too many things can use mirrors as windows or doors." Unquote. That is something, just like one more thing, that a wizard must worry about. And you know, so far we know that magic can make deadly use of a person's body, like your hair and nail clippings for thaumaturgy, uh, one's name for summoning and who knows what else at this point in the story, and now for mirrors. And I assure you there are others. And that's a lot of extra dangers to constantly keep in the back of one's mind. Now we begin to understand the logical and practical source of much of Harry's paranoia. And in this chapter, we get a hint at another source, deep and powerful, buried most days by the memory fog of time. A decade having passed since the day Harry first felt true terror. But another tease on that in a bit. Harry is a wreck. He's exhausted and still feeling the effects of the skull tap from the night before. But Harry won't let Murphy down. That's just the kind of guy he is. The excellent description of Lieutenant Murphy's precinct gives the location a unique richness, like just as Jim does for Harry's apartment. Quote, The police station Murphy worked in was one in an aged complex of buildings that housed the Metro Police Department. It was run down, sagging in places like an old soldier who nonetheless stood at attention and struggled to hold in his gut. There was graffiti along one wall that the janitor wouldn't come to scrub off until Monday morning." Unquote. 
Murphy's department is clearly neglected by CPD funding committees, uh, evidenced by its need of repair and maintenance. Uh, Murphy has to charge a nominal fee for the coffee in her office to continue to be able to provide it. Some urban art terrorist has, or art, art terrorist? Art, art, terror, art terrorist, anyway, has tagged the building, knowing they'll get the recognition for the act long enough to make the brazen move worth it. The building's anthropomorphization as a tired and overweight but dedicated trooper gives personality to the Special Investigations Department itself, the people in it, because the department is looked at with derision by CPD at large, if it's observed at all. So while Harry waits to be buzzed up to Murphy's office, a pair of officers drag in a strung-out, handcuffed sack of potatoes and haul him upstairs. Given the okay, Harry heads up and waits for Murphy to get off the phone from someone whom she's clearly long been suffering. Harry hears a scream and a scuffle and, too tired to think, gets up to investigate. Now, like I talked about in episode one, this seems to be, again and again, his default setting. He just needs to figure out what's going on. That's all on that. I just appreciate consistency. Anywho, poking his head out into the hall, Harry sees the handcuffed man, um, no longer dazed, but running full tilt towards him, the arresting officers hopelessly trying to catch him. Quote, Stop! One of the officers shouted, panting. Stop that man! The hair on the back of my neck prickled. The man running toward me kept on screaming, high and terrified, his voice a long and uninterrupted peal of something. Terror, panic, lust, rage, all rolled up into a ball and sent spewing out into the air through his vocal cords. I had a quick impression of wide, staring eyes, a dirty face, a denim jacket, and old jeans as he came down the shadowy hallway. His hands were behind his back, presumably held there by cuffs. He wasn't seeing the hall he was running through. I don't know what he was looking at, but I got the impression that I didn't want to know. He came hurtling toward me, and the stairs, blind and dangerous to himself. It wasn't any of my business, but I couldn't let him break himself apart in a tumble down the stairs." Unquote. And then later, a couple paragraphs later, quote, I caught his jeans at the cuff and gave his leg a solid sideways tug. That did it. He spun off balance and went down to the tile floor. The scream stopped as the fall took the wind from him. He slid to the top of the stairs and stopped, feebly struggling. And then something strange happened. The young man looked up at me, and his eyes rounded and dilated until I thought they had turned into huge black coins dotted onto his bloodshot eyeballs. His eyes rolled back into his head until he could hardly have been able to see, and he started to shout in a clarion voice, Wizard! he trumpeted. Wizard! I see you! I see you, wizard! I see the things that follow, those who walk before and he who walks behind. They come. They come for you." Unquote. Now, that's not the end of the weirdness, but it mostly trails off from there. 
the officers catch up and thank Dresden for the assist, using derogatory words to refer to the man in reference to his chemical habits. The 3 eye user is senseless, grinning, continuing to mutter these oddly specific references to an entity whose name a non-magic user simply should not know. I remember reading this for the first time. I was like sitting at attention, maybe some goose flesh on my arms, like head cocked and eyes like plates, like who the fuck is he who walks behind? Ah, and that's why the first half dozen times I read or listened to Stormfront, I missed the subtle clue, tucked in with the officer's explanation to Harry of the man's behavior. Quote, One of those new three-eye punks caught him down by the lake in his car with four grams of the stuff. Unquote. By the lake, you say? Interesting. Harry seems to miss it too, but... I see you now, Jim. I see you. Okay, I'm better. But I suspect this is not the only hidden nugget in this passage. You may have missed it yourself. So let's go back. Quote. The young man looked up at me, and his eyes rounded and dilated, until I thought they had turned into huge black coins dotted onto his bloodshot eyeballs. Unquote. Black coins, is it? Might this refer to the involvement of a certain evil denomination of Roman currency we know? So much on which to speculate in this fabulous chapter. And why wouldn't Harry miss all that? He doesn't know what we know, and he was busy wondering how this member of Muggles on Druggles could have seen his spiritual scar from being marked by the so-called hunter spirit as a young man. He who walks behind was sicked on Harry by a, quote, enemy of mine, unquote. At this point, Harry is not ready to give us any more information about it than that. Not that he has much more information on it, just that the who that enemy was and why that enemy sent the stalker after Harry is something he doesn't have time to get into right now. Because he has to tell us why 3-Eye allowing Vanillas to tap into the site is so perilous for both the supernatural world and its collective prey. Quote, The kind of things you see when you learn how to open your third eye could be blindingly beautiful, bring tears to your eyes, or they could be horrible. Things that made your worst nightmares seem ordinary and comforting. Visions of the past, the future, or the true nature of things. Psychic stains, troubled shades, spirit folk of, of all description. The shivering power of the never-never in all its brilliant and subtle hues and going straight into your brain. Unforgettable. Permanent. Wizards quickly learn how to control the third eye, to keep it closed except in times of great need, or else they go mad within a few weeks. I shivered. If the drug was real, if it really did open the third eye in mortals, instead of just inflicting ordinary hallucinations upon its users, then it was far more dangerous than it seemed. Even with the deleterious effects demonstrated by the junkie I had tackled, even if a user didn't go mad from seeing too many horrible or otherworldly things, he might see through the illusions and disguises of any of a number of beings that passed among mankind regularly, unseen, which could compel such creatures to act in defense for fear of being revealed. 
unquote. There's that word again. I really hope that this dehumanization of drug users is a hairy character flaw and a police officer number two character flaw and not one of Jim's. Though Harry's flaws, like his sexism and hot-headedness and stubbornness, are usually openly acknowledged. It may simply be an unconscious prejudice, born of the two decades deep war on drugs paradigm of the time. Anyway, I'm reminded that drugs bestowing a true sight is not a new idea. Many cultures across the world use psychedelic substances to induce vision quests and the like. Here's one you may not know the story of. In ancient Greece, the Pythia, who bathed in the sacred Castilian spring and drank the sweet waters of the Cassitus, purportedly home to a magical naiad, near the temple of Apollo at Delphi, was granted visions and gave oracle to worthy petitioners. That was a really long sentence. I'll look out for that next time. Turns out, modern scientists in archaeology, geology, chemistry, and toxicology have found evidence that Pythia throughout the ages were actually breathing petrochemical fumes from these springs. Gases like carbon dioxide, methane, and notably ethylene, which smells sweet and grants euphoria and, you guessed it, hallucinations. In lieu of water spirits, gods of prophecy, and anesthetic gas, someone must be flooding Chicago with an imbibable that thrusts magical sight upon unsuspecting mortals. And that ain't good. One can only hope the effects are temporary. Finally, Murphy is done on the phone. She shuts down and unplugs her computer to save it from Harry's tech-muddling field. There's another great description, this time of Murphy's office. I couldn't say it better than Jim, so here goes. Quote, I followed her to her office, a hastily assembled thing with cheap plywood walls and a door that wasn't hung quite straight. The door had a paper sign taped to it, neatly lettered in black magic marker with Lieutenant Karen Murphy. There was a rectangle of lighter wood where a plaque had once held some other hapless policeman's name. That the officer never bothered to put up a fresh plaque was a not-so-subtle reminder of the precarious position of the Special Investigations Director." Unquote. Even as a legacy officer, because remember, her dad was too, and I think a couple of her brothers, she'd just been too honest in her paperwork after dealing with a troll, I think it was. This is the department to which officers are shuffled when they are being put on notice for being troublesome. And it shows with this slapdash exterior, but the interior of her office reflects Murphy's classy dedication to her work and her role as a protector of the public. Sleek professional furniture on the walls, an organized pinboard of open cases, her degree, some Aikido trophies and marksman awards. She's a good cop who stirred the pot. So down to business. Harry tries to tell her how impossible the spell would be. He describes the process, first the part she knows. The caster used hair or nail clippings from Jennifer Stanton and Tommy Tom to link them to a proxy doll or a poor sacrificial animal who had their heart removed. Then a ginormous quantity of energy was used to make it happen to the human victims. Quote, the amount of energy you need to do this is staggering it would be a lot easier to manage a small earthquake than to affect a living being like that. Best case scenario, 
I might be able to do it without killing myself to one person who had really, really pissed me off. Unquote. And then later, quote, I think it would kill me to try to, unquote. He goes on to explain that it would have to be the eldritch equivalent of a beefy Schwarzenegger or a precision master like Mr. Miyagi, or a group of casters pooled their power to pull it off. And now Murphy's exasperated. She might be looking for 50 murderers when she doesn't even have a single suspect. Here we get another throwaway line that just screams to me of endgame foreshadowing. Quote, 13, I corrected her. You can never use more than 13. But I don't think that's very likely. It's a bitch to do. Everyone in the circle has to be committed to the spell, have no doubts, no reservations. Unquote. So who here thinks that at the last, there will be a circle of 13 dark practitioners against a dirty baker's dozen of Harry and his allies? I do. So who might they all be? A Chichen Itza reunion tour? 26 mighty wizards facing off. You know, or shooting the moon, I suppose. That's a spades joke. You're welcome. Anyway, I have my suspicions for both dream teams, but that is a bonus episode for another time. So let me know what you think in the comments. Harry comes clean about visiting Bianca and tells Murphy that the vampiress is not behind the Broken Hearts murders, nor does she know who is. Harry and Murphy continue to sift through their clues. The killings were a very personal message, but not to Bianca to Johnny Marcone. It's about the Three-Eye pushing in on Marcone's narcotic sales region, a drug made with real magic, which competes with mob territory, concurrent with a couple of sorcerous deaths, one of whom is a mob bodyguard. Coincidence? Yeah, nobody thinks so. So who then? Murphy tries to get Harry to name names. What other wizards does Harry know that could do this? Oh. Just the, the idea of uh, what the White Council would do. So before Harry can object too strongly or laugh at the thought of handing her the White Council's local membership roster, his concussed and exhausted condition catch up to him at last, and in a warbly-skulled, rubbery-bodied boom-boom-boom thing, he is welcomed to the wonderful world of unconsciousness. Chapter 12, Can't Remember, Must Nap. This chapter is quieter, more personal, dealing with consequences, the things that follow, allowing the plot to inch forward past the splat of excitement from the last one. Murphy has taken steps to care for Dresden, her jacket folded beneath his head, feet propped up, a cool cloth on his forehead and neck, she nullifies his protestations of self-sufficiency, refusing to let him stand, let alone drive himself home. He tries anyway, promptly revisiting his last meal on her carpet. Karen calmly cleans him up and takes him home, chiding him for his idiocy, but touching his hand reassuringly the whole way. This is more beautiful characterization, square one groundwork, for the growing trust and intimacy between them. Harry stubbornly and rashly tries to barrel through his head trauma all by himself, 
and Murphy checks him, cleans up after him, cool and collected despite the mess on her office floor. Her concern and compassion are evident. She literally holds his hand through this vulnerable time. They are important to one another, real friends doing what real friends do. Back at Harry's apartment, Karen tries to get him in bed when the phone rings. Linda Randall wants to meet up. She thinks she can help Harry after all. Punch drunk and remembering how enticing she'd been at the airport, Harry says without thinking, Are you naked? Murphy looks at him funny and retreats to give him some privacy. Linda, quote, purred laughter into the phone, unquote, and plays along as though it were purposeful flirtation. She asks him to meet around eight, and when Harry relays that his car is out of commission, she, quote, poured that rich, creamy laughter into my ear again, unquote. I keep mentioning these moments of her vivacious humor because Linda Randall gets so little page time, yet really is a whole person, vibrant and joyful, despite living in shame and cognitive dissonance for her desires. Something to keep in mind for later. Possibly, probably next episode. Anyway, Linda suggests that with an extra hour, she can go to him. And after pondering that niggling feeling that he's forgetting something about Saturday night, he agrees and gets off the phone. Murphy is merciless, handing Harry a heap of guff about what she perceives as a romantic date, claiming that she would snap him like a twig because he's not man enough for her. And here, I have to call out Karen Murphy's sexism for her rejecting the toxic culture of painting real women as chaste and helpless, but buying into painting real men as brawny studs. One can't have equality. Allowing women the range of quote-unquote masculine traits of strength and independence without allowing men the range of quote-unquote feminine traits such as physical slightness and emotional vulnerability. Like many women of the decades since the sexual revolution, in order to be taken seriously by her male colleagues, Murphy took on their behavior, becoming tough, sometimes threatening, sometimes crude, one of the boys, rather than recognizing that both men and women and all other genders can be strong and weak or sexually gluttonous and apathetic in turns or all at the same time. But it's still bothering Harry. What is he forgetting about tonight? <gasps> Monica. He told Monica Sells he'd let her know what he found. She wasn't going to like this, though. He picks up the phone and Murphy chides him again, this time for working too hard while hurt. Quote, Christ, Dresden, I swear you're at least as bad as my first husband. He was stubborn enough to kill himself, too. Unquote. Goodness. Now, we learn that Karen has been married at least twice and that her first husband died. And it's not clear if it was suicide or if he worked himself to death, maybe a heart attack or something. But we find later that Murphy's life is riddled by the tragedy of loss and grief, not just this one. This can help us to understand her anger when she believes Harry has lied and might be a bad guy. 
But she cares for Harry, and to think that she might lose him too is intolerable for Murphy. So Dresden calls Monica Sells and tries to report his findings, but she dismisses him. She is obviously trying to sound casual in front of her family, her young son having answered the phone, and basically says that she'd like to cancel her subscription. You know, they were fine without her, his services, even telling Harry, don't worry about the $500 retainer he, that he insisted on mentioning. She doesn't mention the $500 out loud, but whatever. Um, tells him to keep the money. So the phone then begins to fuzz and crackle as Harry is so used to his ambient magical aura doing. He hears a voice through the static and then Monica says, uh, don't worry about it, thank you, again, and hangs up. So Harry writes this off as technology even being unreliable unreliably, but we will look at this for a moment. Quote, the phone began to buzz and static made the line fuzzy. I thought I heard a voice in the background somewhere, and then the sound went dead, except for the static. For a moment, I thought I'd lost the connection entirely. Blasted unreliable phones. Usually they messed up on my end, not the receiving end. You can't even trust them to foul up dependably." Unquote. So if the voice had been the little boy who answered the phone, Harry would have said, from her slip-up in his office, she mentioned kids she had to go collect from school. So if it had been another child, that would likewise have been easy to deduce and name. Harry called the sound a voice, indeterminate. Someone he did not recognize or expect to be there was there. Someone whose presence would hex the phone line. Now, I think it very likely that Monica was performing on the phone, speaking vaguely as though Harry were someone, anyone else, not for her children, but for her husband, Victor, whose power is strong enough to mess with phones, like Harry's does. Someone who can give Harry a run for his money. If it turns out that it's revealed later in the text and I just don't remember it, I'm going to feel pretty silly, but it's something I noticed this read-through and I don't remember it being addressed later. So, anyway. Victor was there. Karen tucks Harry in bed, takes his temperature, gives him a Tylenol, blows out the candles to leave. On her way out, the phone rings, she answers for him, indicates that she hears nothing on the other line, and hangs up. Harry falls asleep, wondering if it had been Monica calling Harry back, not wanting to respond to Murphy's unfamiliar voice. Who indeed? So there's a few things I left out of her nursing him that further support the case for Karen being Harry's forever girl. I've collected them here for a more coherent argument. Leaving the patient tender caregiving actions and the kiss on the forehead she gives him aside, as they could be explained by sisterly affection, let's look at the exchanges that are exclusively romantic or sexual in content. When Harry accidentally comes on to Linda asking after her state of dress, Murphy is not amused, giving him a quote, arch look, unquote, and leaves the room rather than continue what she was doing and ignoring the content of the conversation. So. Harry, expressing his sexual interest to another person, made Karen uncomfortable. That much is certain. It's possible she disapproves of the body, or 
just doesn't find it funny, but I don't think so. For when Murphy teases Harry, yes, teases him, like on a schoolyard, about making a date, and Harry accuses her of jealousy, she responds with a bold sexual claim of her own. She doesn't shut him down when defending herself. She wants him, but won't show it. Whether she knows it yet or not is another question. We've been told more than once through the series that the first words one speaks upon waking are significant. As the subconscious is shutting off and the ego is booting up, deep truths of which one may not be aware can be revealed. When Harry first wakes to Karen and the cool washcloth, he asks her if she has a little white dress to fulfill a nurse fantasy of his. She calls him a pervert and neither admits nor denies it. So now we know the truth, Harry wants her too, in addition to respecting her, wanting to protect her. And now I'm wondering if she has a nurse's outfit. Thanks, Dresden. Okay, so that's it for this episode. Do you agree that Harry and Murphy are the true romance of the series? Did you catch the lake reference in the police station? Do you think the eyes like black coins phrasing hints at something? Was Victor there in the room? Am I simply not remembering that it was revealed later in the book? Anyway, um, let's see, what was the last one? Oh, will there be a circle of 13 in the apocalyptic trilogy? So who will it be? Comments, you know the drill. Arigato, Dankeschön, and thank you all kindly for listening. Thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. Thank you to my inspirations, those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. And thanks to Jim Butcher for creating such a thrilling and insightful series, up about which I simply cannot shut. Don't forget to check out the Paranet podcast, link in the description. The Never Never podcast is hosted on Podbean. Still, just Podbean. Please follow, share, comment, tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, and what you'd like to hear in the future. Contact me at theneverneverpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye.